Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of uh, Topical Reflections on Music. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming an old friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Emily Dulito. She's a Canadian composer living in Scotland. She's a lecturer in composition at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland in Glasgow, educated in uh, um, the United States, in the Netherlands, um, and in Canada with a lot of uh, international experience, not only as composer, but also as a researcher and as a writer. Uh, addressing both very specialized audiences and the larger public. Uh, welcome, dear Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the first uh, question we will address is the larger contextual question. You are not an EU citizen. You are a foreigner in Britain, and uh, you have lived through Brexit. How did the Brexit affect you and uh, the Glasgow music community? Uh, did you have to restructure international activities as a consequence, or is it still uh, is it still not quite certain with the pandemic uh, where this is going? Yeah, I would say that with the pandemic, you know, a lot of the damage caused by Brexit, and I'm sure it will be quite extensive, remains to be seen because we still haven't had any live concerts in Glasgow since the pandemic began. We're currently not even allowed to leave Glasgow, um, so. We, we do have some hope that maybe things will look up. I think about 56% of the British population has a vaccine now. So we are making progress, but at the moment things are really still very much in pause. Um, so I know, you know the effects of the pandemic have been quite devastating on many artists and many arts organizations. I know a number of freelancers who've had to look for other kinds of work. There was some support for freelancers, but not enough to live on. And I know that some arts organizations have folded, but I think um, I'm really not looking forward to seeing what the additional damage imposed by Brexit will be like. I know uh, some of the uh, some of the artists in Britain uh, have started um, a petition, a movement to uh, have an EU agreement about touring artists. Yeah. Touring artists uh, are, are no longer allowed uh, to enter the EU and uh, EU artists cannot enter Britain without specific kind of visa that really slows down uh, very much yeah. the music exchange. Uh, has, what have you heard about this and uh, how is it developing? Well, I know a lot of people want that. Um, I guess, you know, as a composer and I, I don't perform, so I'm not personally looking to go to tours and also as somebody living in Scotland, um, I think many of us here in Scotland are just hoping that Scotland will eventually separate peacefully and then we can rejoin the EU. So I think I'm sort of more um, attuned to the various hopes people have for how, Scot or maybe even if we don't separate, perhaps Scotland could have some kind of agreement with the EU or something like that. Perhaps the powers can be devolved so that Scotland can have more of a collaborative uh, relationship with the rest of Europe. So. Um, yeah, I think as a composer living in Scotland, that's really where I've been pinning my hopes. Obviously, I hope that um, performers will be able to have some kind of collaborative 
agreement with the EU as well. Though I do think, um, I mean, obviously, you know, it's extremely damaging not to be able to have that free exchange with Europe. At the same time, there's always been so many barriers to collaborating with other parts of the world as well. And what I would really like to see is the kind of um, reciprocal agreements where performers from any country, whether it's in Europe or not, could come here and performers from here could go to any country. Because I think, um, you know, to me, something like the EU is a first step. It's it does have all kinds of problems, and while it's great to have free borders within Europe, it's not fair to keep out people from you know South America or wherever. There's interesting musicians all over the world, and um, I'd like to see anything that increases people's abilities to collaborate and make exciting projects together. As I mentioned in my. Um introduction and as revealed by your answers now you're a very international artist <laughs> yes i guess so <laughs> so you you hold university diplomas from three countries canada the netherlands and the united states you are a teacher in your experience how does the pedagogical approach to teaching composition differ from one country to another yeah that's a really interesting question and it, of course it's quite hard to separate out separate out from who the individual people I studied with and the culture of each each institution that I was at, because that also can vary quite a bit within the country. Plus, you know, I'm 48, so I started studying composition 30 years ago, and things change with time as well. We moved to Scotland in, uh, well, we settled here permanently in 2015. And sometimes I don't know whether something is like just the way we do things since 2015, or the way we do things in Scotland. So, um, you know, I can give you my perspective on studying in Canada, in the 90s, in the Netherlands, in the late 90s, in the States, in the early 2000s. Um, but of course, it's always constantly changing. But I will say that um, my own experience studying in Canada was that students would often be quite deferential to teachers. Um, and teachers would also maybe try to be quite delicate about how they would say things. So they might suggest then something, but if a student said, you must do this, then you would feel that you must do that. And I remember I had a huge culture shock when I moved to the Netherlands and studied with Louis Andreessen. And he'd say, you must never write for Piccolo. You must never write minor six. And <laughs> as a somewhat timid Canadian, I had no idea how to take that. And he'd also say, oh, drop by for tea, stop by. Why do you never stop by? And you know, as a Canadian student, I think, well, you should never impose on your teacher. And one day I told him, I was like, I don't want to bother you. And he said, well, if you were bothering me, I'd tell you you're bothering me. So you know, he, he was expecting sort of more pushback from his students. And when he said, I should never write for the piccolo, what he wanted was for me to say, oh, well, I must write for the piccolo and this is why I have to do it. Um, and it took me quite a while to ease into that way of interacting with a teacher. I don't think I really teach that way. I think I probably teach much more in a, um, say, you know, the style that I was used to in Canada and the States where you might suggest things, but you would never really like try to provoke the student. You just It's interesting that you say this. In my experience, uh, recently, I realized that the way I was brought up in Europe is, is also in a much more direct way. Uh, Someone, uh, someone told me, well, you should have known that this, and I said, well, how would I know? Like, you have to tell me. Right. <laughs> Our meeting is from this time to this time, not, and right. then, you know, I, I, like, I, I need to know. No, it's, this, this, this I think, is definitely a, 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 cultural, a cultural issue. Now, I For have sure. noticed uh, 
I'm 39, but I have definitely noticed that we are a very international community. Uh, people move around a lot, study a lot. Uh, there is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, summer programs, residencies, and uh, all that stuff. So uh, everyone meets everyone at some point. So. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, now uh, I I wish to appeal to your uh, imagination and your sense of the Platonic ideal. You're a, a university lecturer at the Royal Conservatory in Glasgow. If we imagine that we are in a perfect ideal world and you're in charge of the perfection, yeah. how would you structure an undergraduate composition curriculum? And imagine money is not an issue. You're right. rich, like, I was powerful, say... <laughs> rich, powerful, and you can do anything you want. Okay, so the very first thing I would do is make sure every student had a full scholarship. The second thing I would do is have sort of a foundation year course that was free for people who were interested. So say somebody wants to become a composer, but they didn't have music lessons when they were a kid or their school didn't provide very good music education or whatever. Maybe they learned one kind of music, but now they want to play another kind. I would have a year or two year course where they could go and learn all those skills they needed to start an undergraduate degree in composition. Um, you know, I would really like you know, I, th I think there's obviously, you know, students who come from a family where they get music lessons from the time they are five, and then they go to a school where they have a great orchestra, for example, maybe at a big advantage when it comes to going to university. And I don't think that's fair. I think everybody sort of needs a way in, even if they haven't been able to, um, you know, get the background that might be helpful beforehand. So that's the first thing I would do. Um, then it actually gets a little bit more complicated because I feel like, you know, when I, studied music and um, you know right now I'm just teaching composition lessons I'm not teaching theory very much or anything like that so when I studied and when I was doing most of my teaching it seemed like in North America people studied classical music that's just what you did I mean there were also jazz music programs but for example if you said you wanted to be a composer, somebody would say, okay, you need to know all about the theory and history of Western classical music, which I did, and I loved it, and it's great. And when I was teaching, you know, that's what I taught, and that's what I was hired to teach. But I think, um, you know, so we're now at a point when many people are thinking about the fact that classic Western classical music is great, but it's not the only kind of music there is. And what about students who want to study a different kind of music? And I think it's, you know, I don't, I mean, I do feel like when I was a kid, classical musicians had, or many classical musicians had a great deal of snobbery towards other kinds of music. And there was a sense that classical music is, you know, Western classical music is best. And mm -hmm. the other kinds of music are only for those people who don't have access to classical music. I mean, it was really snobby, not everybody, but I feel like that atmosphere was quite prevalent. And I absolutely don't believe that at all. I think, you know, there are so many amazing kinds of music and all of them offer, you know, sort of the same depth of musicality and expression and um, creation. Uh, but I guess, so I feel like in some cases I've seen um, music programs say, well, yes, it's important to learn about lots of different kinds of music. So we'll have a semester of classical music theory and a semester of jazz music theory and a semester of Carnatic music theory and so on. And I think those are all really great, but at the same time, I do think it's important to study one kind of music really deeply. So I guess, again, if you say that 
money is no object, then what I would really like to see is a program where, you know, maybe the students start, they're introduced to many different kinds of music, they figure out which kind they personally want to specialize in, and then they have teachers who are able to give them a really in-depth education into whatever kind of music it is they're interested in. Meanwhile, also having access to hearing music that other people around them are making and having various different collaborations. So I guess, um, yeah, I guess I would really like to see us broadening the possibilities for students, depending on their own interests, while not um, letting go of the opportunity to go really deeply into a particular kind of music, no matter what kind of music it is. It seems to me uh, that that uh, you're speaking from the perspective of someone who maybe had a, an early music education. Now, in I went to music school, age five to, uh, I started at, at age five in a music school. Yeah. So when I, when I entered my undergraduate degree, you know, uh, dictation, uh, solfege, theory, basic music history, that, that was already all covered. Yeah. Uh, but it seems that your ideal program is addressed more to people who, uh, who have not had this experience. I guess with your, with your one or two year of preparatory course. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, it's a problem. No, please continue. Oh, well, I was gonna say like some people have access to early music education, which is great. And I had, you know, I didn't go to a conservatory, but I had piano lessons and recorder lessons and oboe lessons and music theory. Um, so I'm really glad I had all that education, though I don't think it was an, as intense as if I had started at a specific mm -hmm. music school when I was five. But at the same time, there's, um, you know, people who have, let's say, equal potential to be a good musician, but haven't had that access. So I guess, I guess you know, I should say that giving a scholarship to everybody and providing, you know, sort of foundational courses uh, would be, you know, something I would do right away. But maybe if I can back up further than that, can I say, can we have like every school in the world have access to a fine musical education? For yes, yes, we can totally I mean, that would be even better, of course. <laughs> yes, of course, this this would be the best. Uh, I, uh, I totally agree. And, and let's hope at least one of us uh, wins the lottery. Sounds good. Sounds yeah, good. And then, uh, and then we are going to do it now. I, uh, I am a substitute teacher here in the in Montreal. I only do substitute teaching in music. Uh, mm -hmm. Now I have noticed every single kid is interested. Mm -hmm. There is there is no child that is left untouched by the sound of music. Right. Right. Uh, and I, you know, one of the schools I substitute teaching is a specialized school in the arts. Mm. Uh, and and again, sadly, we should imagine how many children never get the chance. Yeah, because you now maybe the greatest violin, greatest violinist in the world, maybe never picked up a violin. Right. Exactly. Right. Just yeah. thinking about this. Uh, yeah. Makes and even you know, even for that kid who is not the greatest violinist in the world, maybe they would be super happy playing in an amateur orchestra exactly. all their life. But they can't if they don't get the chance. Exactly. So yeah. So yes, I take it back. The the foundation year actually needs to go all the way to when kids are little and they have free music education all along. That's and I would right. say, you know, growing up in Halifax, like I there was quite a good school music schools music education program. So, you know, I had oboe lessons from the time I was eleven. I was in choirs, I was in wow. orchestras with very good teachers. I'm not sure if um 
you know, it's if people are still having that access, but I hear all the time about kids who want to play, you know, oboe in school, but they can't because they can't afford an oboe. You know, I, I recently heard about a kid in England and it was like, no. why is there not a school's music system yet yeah. it's providing oboes? Like, I think we, we did rent our instruments, but it was like $40 for the whole year. Like it was very cheap. Um, and yeah, why, I mean, why are these not being made available to kids? Exactly, you know, yeah. yeah, you know, now we're sort of navigating the um, education system in Glasgow and so far, the kids have had almost no music education. I, I, you know, we're getting the music lessons, but I'm a musician and it's hard enough for me to figure out how to get them educate, educated in music because the school doesn't provide anything. Um, so think how it must be for parents who aren't musicians themselves or parents who are new here and maybe don't speak English all that well. Maybe they don't know musicians. Like it, it just shouldn't be that hard for kids to get a musical education. If yes, you should have. totally agree. Now, um, uh, on a totally different topic, because uh, you're, you're such a you're such a multifaceted artist. I'm trying to uh, get all your uh, all all your uh, let's say um, paths in one single interview. Right. Uh, you uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. So you have published uh, uh, articles in Zoomusicology. It this is a field where a large part of your research is situated. Now, what does zoomusicology entail? Uh, how do you conduct experiments? And what do you aim to reveal with your continuing investigation? Now, of course, most of our people, uh, our listeners are not specialists. So uh, okay. what the, like people are certainly asking themselves a question. Are you teaching dogs to sing arias? <laughs> I'm not teaching dogs to sing arias, okay. though I will say that our dog likes to howl along when my son uh, practices his bagpipe. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, zoomusicology, it, it's a term that's been around, uh, I guess, since the 1980s, the French composer Francois Bernard Mach coined the term. Um, and it refers to the study of music-like sounds made by non-human species. And various different people would define it different ways. So, you know, some people would feel like um, yeah, some people would feel like, you know, some animal songs are music and they're studying them as music. I tend to feel like, you know, the, just the idea of what is music is such a nebulous concept anyway. If you try to come up with a definition of music, it's really hard to come up with a definition that includes everything we consider music and excludes everything that we don't. Um, so I guess for me, I feel like, you know, the question of whether animal songs are music or not can't really be answered because it depends what you mean by songs and it depends what you mean by music and so on. But I do feel like there's enough overlaps between what some animals are doing in their songs and what we do in some of our music that you can use some of the same tools to study animal songs that you can to study human music. And by the same token, um, you know, as humans, of course, we are animals and anything we do is also a biological activity. Um, even if we feel like we're singing, you know, some song just because we love it and we want to express ourselves and that's the only reason, probably an alien biologist looking at us would actually be able to see behavioral reasons we're choosing to sing this piece now rather than some other piece another time as well. So I think, um, you know, we can use music theoretical tools to look at animal songs, but we can also use biological tools to look at human music making. So I guess I'm, you know, particularly interested in looking at 
um, instances where these come really close together. Um, in my own research, one thing I've done a lot is just analyze bird songs, sort of the way, same way I would analyze human music. Um, so just looking at the patterns that are present within the songs, looking at pitch relationships. And again, um, you know, not all bird songs uh, have defined pitches. Many of them are made out of noises or out of sliding tones. So um, it wouldn't be easy to look at pitch relationships in many bird songs, but because that's something I'm good at doing, I've selected bird songs where it is easy to look at pitch relationships and I've sort of looked at patterns and um, where, so I, I, there's two main species I've studied, the hermit thrush and the musician wren. And we found that the hermit thrush actually sings its songs based on the overtone series. Um, wow. And of course, yeah. So, you know, of course the, it was, it's a song that's been widely considered very attractive to human musicians for quite a long time. And people have made all kinds of theories about it. Like it sings major and minor scales or it modulates from one key to another. There's all these sort of histories as, of writing from maybe from about 150 years ago until about 50 years ago, explaining hermit thrush song in Western classical musical terms, which of course don't make sense. Like a hermit thrush is not going to be um, singing its song based on the rules of classical harmony. That wouldn't make sense. Um, but when we found the overtone series in the song, then suddenly everything sort of fell into place because the intervals that we use in Western musical scales also can be derived from the overtone series. So you're hearing a lot of similar intervals and similar juxtapositions of intervals in both human music and uh, Hermit's Rush song. So it makes sense that listeners who didn't have recordings and couldn't slow the song down might say, oh, well, this sounds familiar, so it must be a major scale. Um, so it was really interesting to discover that, well, you know, as we suspected, of course, the hermit thrush is not singing major scales, but actually it's singing the physical pattern that both its song and some of our scales are derived from. Now, obviously, all these articles have to be published. Yes. Uh, now, uh, during, during the pandemic, um, I published more articles per year than, uh, than before. Uh, mostly because I couldn't plan or execute concerts. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, now I'm I'm lucky. Uh, I have a I have a moral objections to the model that's uh, uh, paid to be published, uh, and uh, I'm lucky because uh, in Bulgaria and some international publications still they give the opportunity to people to submit their article and without requesting membership in a specific organization uh, or, uh, or paying a, a fee that some has different names such as uh, administrative fee or something else. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm very lucky. Like now I have two articles in print, uh, um, one on ontology and the other one epistemology. And uh, I, I, I have not paid a penny <laughs> to have right. them published. <laughs> now, in North America, ever since I, I have lived here, writers for publication, commercial, but not only, also academic publications, are paid very little. And uh, whenever they are paid, it's generally a so-called independent contractors that gives the publishers legal excuse not to pay benefits, not to guarantee a certain amount of work. Now, you have published articles in various freely accessible commercial publications, and I'm very grateful to you because this is how I read them. 
<laughs> now, this is especially on topics touching gender identity, family planning. Um, now, surely your wisdom on the topic, topic of obtaining paid work would be appreciated. Now, you, uh, well, <laughs> every woman would like to hear what you have to say. I think about what I it would probably boil down to, I don't really know how people make money from writing, but I would say, first of all, what you're mentioning about, you know, paying to publish something. So, you know, I, I've published in a wide variety of fields and sort of the norms vary within different academic fields. So for example, all of the, so far as I know, all or almost all of the, you know, highly regarded scientific academic journals expect you to pay to publish. Now you wouldn't be paying personally, it's your grant or your institution that would be paying, but you have to pay, you know, an article I just recently had published, um, my institution had to pay $2,900. And that's just, I know, that's just, that's just standard within the sciences. And the thing is, you know, in music, that seemed like you would, it would be a total scam if you had to pay anything to be published in a music journal. But usually music journals operate where you very often don't have free access to the journal unless your library subscribes or something. Many of these scientific publications are now freely available online but your institution or your grant will have paid for the article to, um, to be published. So, I mean, it's funny, first of all, navigating between these two different academic cultures where from a musical point of view, it seems really sketchy for the scientific publication to be asking for a publication fee, but from a scientific view, it seems really sketchy that this music publication would be expecting people to subscribe to it to get the articles. So that's academic publishing. Um, and I don't know, it, it's very hard to get out of paying those fees if you're publishing in a field where fees are, you know, figured into everybody's grants and uh, departmental budgets. Then the wow. other kind of like you better be rich then. Well, no, yeah, it's not you personally. It's the well, well, no, but I mean, yeah. me would be personally. I'm an independent researcher. Well, that's the thing. So it means that even you know, I mean, and I was in a very lucky position that my institution would pay for my publication, even though that's not the norm in arts institutions. But they knew that it was for that publication. But absolutely, like you might at some point write something that actually is of relevance in a biology journal but you wouldn't be able to publish it there because you couldn't afford it unless you had an institution backing you up. So I think it's a huge problem. Um, I, I admit I'm super lucky. I, I have published through academic publications uh, in Bulgaria mostly. Well, mm -hmm. not, not only, but mostly. And uh, there you, you submit your article, but it's the institution that has an academic publishing house. Uh, right. And they, and they publish like that's what they do. Yeah. No, yeah. uh, well, I would say, you know, I've never, my, so my articles that are in scientific publications, there's a fee that was paid, not by me personally, thankfully. In my music publications, no fee has, fee has been paid. And then there's the non-academic publications, which yeah, I remember having a discussion with somebody about like, how much do you get paid if you write an article for, you know, say an online magazine or something like that. And I mean, fees in my experience range from nothing to like quite a good rate, you know, mm -hmm. $350, $500 for something quite short. Um, because so, it's per word. What? Because it's you per know, word. I've never actually figured it out per word. Yeah. Um, 
and I haven't really sought that kind of work because I, you know, I have an academic position right now and I had one previously as well. So I will say that, you know, of my online publications that are about, you know, gender and parenthood and creativity and things like that. Um, some of them I have been paid something, but others, you know, my publications that are on New Music Box, I mean, I think they do pay some people to write some things, but in those cases, I just had some ideas and I was like, I need to write this and I couldn't even not write the article. So I, you know, I'd already started and then I was like, would you publish this? And it's been a great forum to getting it out there. For example, you know, my article on um, being a composer and a parent, I know a lot of people have read and I often meet people and they say, oh, I loved your article. So in that sense, and like I sort of had to write it because once I had those ideas, like I couldn't, I, I needed to write them. So in a sense, I haven't particularly been seeking, I mean, I guess I've written reviews and when people ask me to write re reviews and that's paid, of course. Of course. Um, yeah, so I guess it's, I guess, I mean, I guess it's a little bit like writing music, like, you know, most of the time I'm commissioned, but there could be a time when I'm like, I just need to do this idea and I don't really care if somebody pays me, I'll just get the money I need. Um, so I, I feel like writing is a little bit like that. And particularly yeah. for the articles in parenthood and gender, it's been more like just some idea has started, it's planted itself in my brain. And I've been like, I need to write this. You and like, write, when I'm writing, yeah. when I get excited about a paper, like it's sort of, you know, I know a paper is going to, be something good if like when I'm lying in bed going to sleep the paper sort of assembling itself in my brain. I know, I know, <laughs> I, 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 when I started writing uh, more seriously uh, a couple of years ago those articles I, I never, I never thought that that it would be a, a similar kind of inspiration than with composing but it is. It is, yeah, it yeah. Is. Like it's exactly the same kind of inspiration it just the way it reveals itself is different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. we are meant to be poor for the rest of our life. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, people who do want to make money from writing would have to probably have to approach it differently. And they would probably, you know, very often they'd be in a position where somebody is saying, we'll pay you this amount to write about this topic rather than them yeah. choosing the topics they want to write about. So, um, and I guess for me, I've also, you know, a number of my... Uh, the things I write, there's sort of an academic version of the article and then a non-academic version of the article. So like my article about um, motherhood and composing, uh, I wrote the non-academic version first, then I turned it into a conference talk. Um, and then there's a book coming out of that conference. So I turned the article into an academic version of the article, which is going to be published in that book, which I do not have to pay a fee for because it's in the humanities. So there's no fee. <laughs> Yes, you know, I, I, I figured some, uh, some colleagues told me that they don't even receive an author's copy of their own article or book. Right. Oh, that's, yeah. Like I've always received at least an author's co copy. Yeah. But. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, we are going to remain on the topic of, uh, of business. I will quote an article uh, that you could have written composing in the entrepreneurial era. It was published on my birthday. That one I was paid for, but I don't remember how much. <laughs> Pardon me? Oh, I was paid to write that article, by the way, but I chose the topic. I was Good, good, good. Well, article. it would have been really ironic if you weren't paid for that one. <laughs> so here is a quote. Uh, These days, the conversations turn immediately to money before we even imagine the piece. How can we make it fit this grant? How can we market it? How can we maximize its impact? 
finding funding for the artists and the production of the work is important, of course. And I certainly don't suggest that we work for free. But I'm wary of letting considerations of marketability affect the shape of our work from its beginning stages before we've even begun to imagine what it might be. Now, again, uh, in the platonic ideal, I agree with you. And I wonder, uh, it made me think about how I personally have approached various works differently and with some of them, even before I have imagined a single note, um, I have thought about marketability. Now in the history of music, of course, uh, um, marketability to sponsors and patrons and utility for various wedding and funeral gigs, et cetera, have, have always been a primary influencer. You say in the same article, musicians have adapted to church requirements, patron requirements, grant requirements over the course of time, and these are all market requirements. So uh, doesn't writing for an academic salary for the university's new music ensemble, rather than being uh, thrown in the zeitgeist considerations, for example, give the wrong kind of impression about the real world to aspiring composers and even to academically employed composers. Now that I'm not an academic composer, I, uh, I approach people for interesting projects and we do think about the project in the ideal version and we look for grants to make it happen, but sometimes we need to adapt it. So I'm, I'm very interested in expanding a bit, uh, a bit on this topic. Right, yeah. So first of all, you know, as I said, like composers have always had to fit, we've always had to fit ourselves into whatever's going on sort of in the general economics of the time, whether we need to be employed by the church or by the court or by wealthy patrons or whatever. So I think what I find disturbing about all the, um, conflation of being a composer with being an entrepreneur is just this idealization. It's one thing to say, okay, we have to function under the- um, Constraint. You know, the, the constraint, yes, that's the word. I was gonna say confines, but it wasn't quite that, though it's also confining, but the constraints of capitalism, um, of course we do. So we have to figure out how to do that and still make the art we want to do. But I feel like it often sort of spills over and maybe even more so in the States. I wrote this article just after I had left the States. Um, it spills over into thinking, not only do we have to fit into capitalism, but because we have to fit into capitalism, this is the best way, the work that makes the most money will be the best work. And I think that's really dangerous. It's not that, I mean, you know, you could make very good work that would also make a lot of money, but it's sort of an independent value, like whether the music you create earns a lot of money or earns no money has very little correlation with its work as an art. And I feel like, especially in the States, but increasingly elsewhere in the world, there's sort of a pushing of this mentality that somehow the market value actually is the intrinsic value of something. And that's what I find dangerous. And likewise, like, I mean, of course, we all have to learn how to, you know, network and budget and promote ourselves. I mean, that's, you know, again, artists have always had to do that within whatever culture and uh, context they're working in. But I think there can be a conflation of knowing that we have to do these things because that's just how we get our work known with feeling like these things are intrinsically part of the work and or intrinsically add to its value. And for example, you know, in the moment I'm thinking of somebody I knew, um, just a second. 
Can you pause for one second? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. Sorry. Um, yeah, so I'm just, you know, I'm thinking right now of somebody I knew many years ago, a student who had a super slick website, just, you know, made them look very professional, like they could do anything for anything. It looked great, but the student had only written two pieces ever. Um, and I feel like people are sort of really pressured into that kind of thing in the States where it's almost like people learn about marketing themselves and selling themselves and trying to make money before they have the chance to really think about who they are and what they're trying to do and maybe how to do it. Um, I, in a way, I feel like I, I feel sort of lucky to have escaped from the States because it, uh, you know, it begins to affect you after yes. living there for a while. And, you know, there may be Americans listening to this. There's many great people in the States and I miss many collaborators and friends there. So I don't mean to say that, you know, being in the States means people can't make good art, but let's say I feel like American musicians are working against even harder odds than people in many other places in the world. Often, you know, when students ask me, like American students ask me like, you know, what is your advice for being a composer? One of my first pieces of advice would be move to another country where there's more support for the arts and where you're not always having to like cling to this very um, American dream ideal of like always promoting yourself and getting ahead and you'll be able to do it if you just promote yourself enough. Like we actually, um, and the thing is like, you know, you know, I, I mean, I like sharing my work and I like sharing other people's work. I like building things up. But in America, it can often become so individualized that people are really busy promoting themselves and they don't even have time to think about how to build communities and structures that are actually supportive of everybody independent of this sort of day-to-day -day trying to push what you do. Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm so like um, happy to hear someone else say this. No, I studied in the States for four years and a half. Oh yeah, where in the States? I don't remember. Hmm? Where, where did you study in the States? I did the second half of my undergraduate degree at Boston University between January 2000 and May 2002. And then I did a master's at Eastman. Okay. Yeah. Before 2006. And, you know, after four years and a half, I, I was, I didn't feel very comfortable. Yeah. It starts to affect Because you. of this kind of approach to um, uh, your, um, I don't know your place as a composer being defined by your visibility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah so, uh, yes. Uh, I, I know I, it's a bit of a joke among people in other countries, like how American composers are so self-promoting and like you meet them and they're like, oh, here's an award I won or whatever. And it's like, I just met you. You don't need to say that. But at the same time, like if you live in the States, you start becoming like that because if you're not always there, people ignore you. Yes. Um, and you won't and again, get I don't mean this is a slight on any individual Americans, and there are so many great American artists doing amazing things. But I just think that, um, you know, I feel like when we moved to Glasgow, it's like my background level of stress just dropped by, you know, 60% or something, just because, you know, I mean, the UK has plenty of problems. You know, I, I don't want to pretend it doesn't have a lot of problems, but like at least there's healthcare for all people. Mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, there's just certain certain aspects of ensuring that um, 
you know, social support is available for everybody here that just aren't there in the States at all. So there's just suddenly this slightly more collective sense, which I think is much healthier for um, making music. And I mean, I feel, you know, Canada to me feels a lot like the UK does as well. There's sort of, even though things aren't always implemented perfectly and you always need more funding for healthcare and for social support and for education and things like that, there is sort of a sense that people should have access to these things. Whereas in the States, there's sort of very much a sink or swim mentality. And even if you don't personally believe that, it's sort of so much there in the, in the air that it starts to affect you anyway. I would like to stay a bit on the same wavelength here. I will read another quote from uh, your article, uh, Composing in the Entrepreneurial Era. We need grants that fund on the basis of what we will try rather than what we promise to produce. We need the freedom to write the music that the audience does not know it wants, as well as the music it does already know that it wants. We need a social support system that allows us to stop thinking about money for long enough to create. And we need to be able to experiment without worrying that a lack of commercial success will result in financial ruin. We need to be working to build a vibrant musical and artistic community together instead of scrambling for individual survival. We need the freedom to let art emerge from the dark and quiet spaces without pretending to know in advance what it will be or whom it will affect. Though we are all living in a world that values entrepreneurialism above all else, we don't have to let its values become our own. I think this is an incredible quote, uh, a, a very poignant quote, um, very appropriate. Uh, and uh, it made me think of a debate that's currently going on in Canada, the idea of a nationally established artist status. Uh, now, of course, uh, we know that in some countries such as France, uh, statut des artistes exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, professional artists uh, declared as such do have uh, a substantial support from the government. Yeah. And I wonder, is this an idea that you would in generally support? And if so, how would, in your opinion, such a status be achieved and maintained? How should it be achieved and maintained? Right. Good question. And I would say, first of all, I think absolutely there should be such a status and pe you know, um, people should have access to that. Uh, again, if I can be idealistic, I really wish that everybody had access to a guaranteed minimum income. Um, because obviously artists need to know they're not going to starve, but other people also need to know, to, know that they're not going to starve. Um, so, you know, I guess I can imagine various ways that it could play out. You could imagine a country where everybody has a guaranteed minimum income, regardless of what they do. So then if you were an artist, you know, you'd feel comfortable to try things. And if you didn't succeed, you know, that month or that year, you'd still have some income coming in. You could imagine it being a special artist status, in which case, um, you know, you'd have to figure out how that status would be established in a way that was fair to everybody, including people, you know, I think historically, of course, there's been a problem with people who have a certain artist status, not recognizing other artists either because they're making a different kind of art or because of prejudices um you know thinking oh women can't do this or people who aren't white can't do this or whatever so you need would need to come up with a system that's fair where you know the individual choice uh, prejudices of 
the people who already had the status wouldn't, um, you know, affect who's given that status. Uh, and I'm sure there's ways of doing it that are more fair. You know, sometimes it's like if you show that you've done so much in a certain year or that you've had the education that's appropriate to whatever the art form you're making is. So that's not going to look the same for everybody. Maybe it's an apprenticeship or maybe it's a degree or maybe it's studying with a certain person or maybe it's, you know, being a practitioner of that art. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I... Uh, yeah, I would love to see a status like that. And I would love to see people work really hard to make sure that it's available to anybody for whom it's relevant rather than to just a sub certain subset of artists. Yeah, it's a, it's very difficult to get out of the mindset of a clique. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Artist communities are small and uh, therefore can become very cliquey. For sure, yeah. So I think this is, this is a danger that we should be aware of and being aware of it is the first step uh, to making sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Right, uh, so then that makes me wonder, like, would it actually be better if there was a separate artist status or would it be better um, if just everybody has a guaranteed minimum income that's livable? Where, you know, I remember when I lived in the Netherlands in the late uh, 1990s, um, you know, there were people, there were artists who, I think it was quite easy to go on or off welfare then. So there'd be artists who earned very little money, but they weren't that worried because if they had no money, they could go on welfare for a few months. And it wasn't like a huge, you know, it wasn't a huge administrative hassle. They didn't have to wait six months to get their payment or something like that. So, you know, whatever the mechanism, um, I think you need two things. You need support for artists and you also need sort of the freedom to, live without making money a priority, but knowing that you'll still be able to eat, you'll still be able to have medical care and so on. Um, you know, even if you don't earn much money one month or one year. And I really see, you know, the difference, um, you know, in the States, like there's so many artists who, for example, have to work full time at another job just so they have health insurance and then they have very little time for their art. And as soon as they would move, you know, if they would move to Canada or Europe, and have healthcare, then suddenly they would be able to work much less, even if they still had to work to earn money to eat, they would no longer have to work full time to get money to have healthcare. Um, so then they would have more time to sort of balance things out and do a bit of different, uh, you, you know, do a little bit of work to earn money and then some art without being as concerned about earning money. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Now I'm a, a supporter of the idea of universal basic income. Mm -hmm. As we know, many research, uh, a lot of research has confirmed that uh, the pros outweigh the cons. Yeah. And uh, I sincerely hope it happens for artists and, and for other people who yeah. work uh, very socially important, yet not very money-making jobs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Lots of- well, uh, Yeah, I've been wondering just sort of about arts grants and things, like what if everybody actually had, you know, the guaranteed minimum to live on. So then when you would apply for arts grants, it would be for the actual money to do the project, like for hiring people or hiring spaces or whatever, but you would already have your income. So you didn't need to be dependent on, you know, short-term applications. I mean, it, you know, I, when I lived in Montreal, I was a freelancer for five years and, you know, three months of my money would come from this grant. And then I, you know, I'd be teaching a bunch another month and then I'd have another grant for three months. And it was so, spotty and I think it's really important for artists to have something a little bit more secure than that. Yes, because the stress affects you physically, not only mentally. For sure. Yep. 
Now, uh, talking about freelancing, uh, you have participated in a number of residences and you have also been artist in residence. Yeah. Could you explain what the difference between those two statuses is. And uh, uh, so having a residence and being an artist in residence. Right. So um, again, you know, I'll maybe talk about different kinds of residencies, but there's all kinds of gradations in between. But um, you know, you have artist residences like McDowell and Yotto and uh, U-Cross, and a lot of them are actually in the States. I think it sort of comes out of, I mean, it's funny, having lived in many different countries, I feel like each country does certain things really well in terms of supporting artists. And something the States does really well, and perhaps it comes out of the tradition of there being very wealthy people who in some cases are actually very generous philanthropists. Um, there's a number of artist residencies there where they're free to attend. You very often have a cabin in the woods or you, you have a very nice room and a very nice working space. Usually the meals are provided, other artists are there. Um, so you have time and space to create and maybe often access to sort of a very relaxed um, rural life with just really good, you know, a nice library, nice food, nice company for discussing your art with whenever you want that you might not ordinarily have access to if you're, you know, living in the city and living on your $10,000 a year or whatever, you know, whatever you might be doing. That's what I did when I was in Montreal. I, I remember actually marveling at how funny it was that I was living on like no money in Montreal, but then I could go to like an artist residency for a month and be extremely well taken care of. And it was just this funny, um, you know, if I had wanted to earn $40,000 a year, there was no way I could figure, you know, figure out how to yeah. do that. But I could earn nothing, or I could go places where I would be treated very well, but nothing in between. Um, but yeah, so they're wonderful, and I highly recommend that you know, if anybody listening is a composer or other kind of artist, I highly recommend applying to these places. Um, and then you know, in Canada, there's places like Banff, which has various residencies of different um, lengths of time. I mean, you can go for a few days or for a longer period of time, and sometimes I think there's funding that you can apply for, um, but it's not. You know, say if you go to McDowell, like everybody who goes there, um, it's free and you can even get them to pay for your transportation. And with Banff, like there's various different ways the residencies take place. Um, so that's, you know, what used to be called artist colonies, but they're often mm -hmm. moving away from the name colony now. Um, then I've also done things where I've sort of been artist in residence at various different places, like the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology, um, in Germany uh, 10 years ago. And that wasn't sort of a defined residency. That was that I had some particular work I wanted to do. And there was a biologist I was collaborating with. And so we applied for funding and I was able to be there as artist in residence, um, making my own work and doing some research and talking to the scientists who were there. And, you know, we put on some concerts and things like that. But that was sort of more uh, you know, the institution and I had ideas for what we wanted to do together and then got funding for me to be an artist in residence. Um, and then the th third thing you were um, mentioning, I think, I don't remember if it was this question or your um, next- Just residence and artist in residence, the difference. And uh, yes, 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 yes. You did answer uh, it. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> now talk, talking about the um, uh, artist uh, residences or no, um, being such an international artist, uh, you can offer comparisons on structuring news across different countries. 
So uh, how do these programs resemble one another in different countries and how do they differ? Now, in my observation, sometimes, not always, but sometimes residences have devolved into pay to rent a hut and do some <laughs> networking, you know, as it For sure, yeah. certain yeah. have devolved to that. Now, uh, how um, do you have different experiences from when you were a student to when you became a professional? And is there a standard residency setup that you have observed? And uh, the yeah. most important, uh, how about the cultural differences between the communities in the different countries? Have you noticed something important or no? Great. So first I'm going to talk about the pay to rent a hut idea because um, before I had kids and before I had a lot of responsibilities, uh, you know, with jobs that I had to be at at a certain time or whatever, I had no idea why anybody would ever pay to rent a hut. But um, often, you know, say like, you know, if I apply to McDowell, I've been twice and I really hope to go again someday because I absolutely love it there. But, you know, you apply, you wait quite a lot of time to hear back. Even if you get in, you don't know exactly when it will be. Um, then people typically go for a month or two months. So it's quite a long period of time. So you need quite a lot of flexibility in your schedule um, because you can't just say, well, I'm free the second week of January so I can go then, you know, that, that wouldn't work. So, um, you know, before I had kids and the particular job I have now and so on, I just didn't see why anybody would ever pay to rent a hut. But shortly after we moved to Scotland and, you know, I had two kids and my time was like very um, precious. Find, yeah, then I have a couple of times paid to rent a hut for like three days because that's all I can get away for. And it's actually really nice to have a working space and to be able to um, talk to other artists when I'm, you know, having my dinner or whatever. And I would say that. Fantastic. Yeah, that's exactly. Fantastic. I would say that, you know, in another time in my life, uh, you know, maybe I would have applied for a, a grant, but that always takes time to come through. Whereas, you know, depending on people's, you know, what's going on in people's lives, like I might only know three weeks, you know, Before, beforehand that yes. I could get away for those days. So I've actually now come to really appreciate the existence of some pay for a hut type residencies. And often Fantastic. those residencies also have funded residencies that you apply for, but then if there's a few huts left, then you can just go spend time in them. And so that I've actually really come to appreciate that as well as one of many- um, Options. Yeah, one of many options. Um, and it's great when they're subsidized, so it's not as much as, you know, a number of them are like somewhat subsidized, so it's not free, but it's also not like staying in a hotel for mm -hmm. three days or something. So I have come to see those benefits as well. Now, in terms of, um, Sort of the different cultures in the different residencies it's really hard for me to say because i've been to different kinds of residencies in different countries so you know the ones i've been to the the ones i've been to in the states um mcdowell ucross and blue mountain center are all the kind which is a funded residency that you pay for that you apply for a long time in advance um then if you get a residency you don't you know, know necessarily when it will be that's sort of assigned to you, then you go, you're there for a month or two months or whatever. And those are really wonderful. I mean, I've loved them so much and I really look forward to when I can go to something like that again. Um, in Canada, I've mostly been to Banff. Um, and then here I've gone to very short residencies at Hospital Field and Cove Park, but because they're very different kinds of residencies, it's hard to compare them, I guess. 
you know, I've, I've been to Banff for three months in the sort of winter artist program. I don't know if they still have that. Then in the States, I've been to various months, to six week long funded re residencies where I had my little cabin in the woods. And then in the UK, I've been to like two or three day residencies and they're all just like different. Yeah, they're kinds they're of quite things. different yeah. indeed. Yeah, I've just applied for a week long residency in England, which is, um, they're trying to sort of pattern themselves after McDowell, which is exciting because I loved going to McDowell. So if I can have an experience that's a little bit like that here, that would be great. And a week is sort of a feasible amount of time for me right now. So I'm hoping for the best for that, but we'll, we'll see. Now, of course, as a teacher, you cannot uh, really take off time whenever you want. Uh, and I would like to go back to your teaching just for a couple of questions. Now, uh, what are the most important components of your pedagogical philosophy? Uh, that is a good question. And right now I am mostly teaching composition lessons and supervising doctoral students. I'm not teaching very many classes. Um, when I was in Seattle, I taught a lot of harmony and counterpoint and um, you know, analysis and orchestration and things like that. But right now it's mostly individual lessons. And I feel like, let's see, I wonder what my underlying philosophy is. I mean, I, you know, I'm not one of those teachers who feels like students need to write in my style or learn any particular technique. I feel like they need to learn who they are and what they want to do. And they need to try a lot of things and develop a lot of skills not because they necessarily need to do all the things they're trying, but they need sort of a full complement of musical skills so that they can be sure that what they're writing is because it's what they really find interesting and what really you know, suits them best rather than because it's the only thing they know how to do. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm thinking about undergraduates there especially. So with undergraduates, I'm often um, encouraging to try them to try different things, even if it seems like a technique that they don't like very much at the beginning, just to see if they can understand it and see if it is something that adds something to their musical language or not, or suggests directions they do or don't want to go in. Um, I know, uh, you know, I feel like some people, um, you know, I have a number of friends who had experiences with teachers where they felt like their teacher would only permit them to write in a certain style. And I really, I would never want any of my students to feel that. So I feel like I'm always saying like, this is my suggestion. And if you disagree, that's fine. Just tell me it's your piece that you need to, um, you know, you need to take it in the direction you want and consider this. And if you find it helps you take the piece in the direction you want to, then use it. If you find it's unhelpful, then tell me that and we'll try something else. Cause I want people to, um, I, yeah, I want people to develop their own interests and their own ability to figure out, you know, when they've gone far enough with a piece or when they want to take it farther in a certain direction. Um, no, especially just, when we when in in the students ear, in the student years, uh, people should feel comfortable trying many different things because for this, sure. is, this is why they're yeah. students, right? Absolutely right. And I always tell people that. Um, you know, I mean, all our lives, I think we should try things and feel free to fail. Like you don't really yeah. learn things, you never risk failing, but especially as a student, that's really your job to try a lot of things, including things that just don't, don't make any sense to you, but you just wanna see what happens if you do that. Um, so yeah, I encourage people not to worry about failure. I do feel like a large part of my role as a teacher, and again, maybe more so with undergraduates than with uh, postgraduates, but I feel like it's often about just helping people with their 
confidence. And very often it's saying, yes, it's fine to try that. Just go ahead, do it. Don't worry about whether you'll like it or not. Just try it, go through with it. And then in a few cases, it's saying, well, actually, I think you should look at that a little bit more before you give it to the performers or something. But it's mm -hmm. like helping people develop, um, yeah, just the sense of when to keep working at something and when it's enough and they can actually put it out into the world. And I think, you know, a mistake that I certainly made well, I still make it sometimes, but I, you know, had a lot of trouble with when I was a student was having my own sense of self-worth tied in with my sort of criticism of my music. And you need to be very critical of your music. And I don't mean that in a bad sense, but you need to really listen as carefully as you can and always be thinking if things could be better or if, you know, something is coming across the way you want it to, but you don't want that to tie, to spill over into always doubting yourself. So I think it's quite a delicate balance um knowing how to uh always be looking for you know what can you be doing in better in your music but while also not feeling that you're a failure as a person if you feel if like something doesn't work yeah exactly so now, I, mean, I, a, I want to say i have that all figured out but it is much better for me now than it was when i was 25 and i um you know i hope that for my students also they can uh I'm hoping maybe they can develop that sense of confidence that isn't disturbed too much by a bad day mm -hmm. with a piece. Um, hopefully they can develop that a little bit sooner than I did. Now, has uh, the COVID-19 pandemic affected your teaching? And um, well, my mother, who is a university professor, tells me that some of her students really thrive in virtual teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had to adapt your teaching methods to socially distance uh, or virtual classes? How does it work? Yeah. Well, like I say, most of my teaching is either undergraduate composition lessons or supervising doctoral students. So that's mostly one-on-one -on -one or possibly sometimes the supervisions are with a couple other supervisors as well. Um, but I'd say that really hasn't changed that much. I mean, obviously, uh, um, you know, I miss seeing people in person. At the same time, when we were in the building of the conservatoire, some of the composition teaching rooms are quite small. So it was always a scramble to get one that was pleasant to be in. Mm -hmm. and in a way, it's a little bit nice just knowing that whenever you want to teach, you don't have to find a room and you can be in your pleasant study. And I think it actually works surprisingly well for teaching composition. I think for teaching, you know, instrumental or vocal studies, it'd be much harder. Um, I've just done, you know, taught a few individual classes and I do find it a little bit strange talking into the screen, especially if students have their cameras turned off and you just sort of feel like you're talking and you think, I hope uh, someone some people are enjoying this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. but so, you know, I think it would have affected me a lot more if I were doing more classroom teaching. But I think what your mother said is absolutely right, that for some students, um, it's actually great being able to do things online. And for example, I think of, um, you know, for example, I know students with disabilities for whom it's actually much easier, especially if it's just, you know, a one hour lecture to be able to attend it from their home rather than having to, you know, coordinate various things that make it possible for them to attend in person. I know that people have really benefited from having auto captioning on Zoom and on Teams. I've even benefited from that sometimes, like when my kids were home from school, uh, there have been times that I've, the kids have been noisy, so it was really hard for me to listen to something I needed to be at, but I could read it. So I've really appreciated the auto captioning. 
Um, I've known of students, for example, with autism who just found it much easier to talk about their work on video or even with the video off, but just on the phone yeah. than to do it in person. Um, so I really hope that uh, when things do go back to in person, there's sort of uh, the flexibility to allow people who can participate better online to have that option as well. I think that, I, I, I mean, I actually look forward to using technology better and as something that enhances the things we can do in person rather than, you know, one or the other. And with the recognition that, you know, one student will maybe need to attend all their lessons online because that works better for their way of learning and other people might do things all in person and so on. I completely agree. And this also makes the world smaller. My mother's students sometimes come from other cities. You know, they arrange to have all their classes over the weekend because they work during the week. They're like older oh, yeah. students. Yeah. So in the weekend, they actually have to travel. But now with the pandemic, they haven't traveled. Right. And they, they sleep more. They can be mm -hmm. present for their families in the evenings. Yeah. And, uh, and I sincerely hope that the hybrid model will impose itself yeah. uh, to, for the benefit uh, of all. And maybe yeah. this is a silver lining to teaching in pandemic. Now, yeah, I hope, yeah. I, yeah, I've heard, um, again, you know, I know about somebody who the institution they teach at uh, was trying to reduce funding to the music department. So then they just decided that in the future, all instrumental teaching would be online so they wouldn't have to maintain the spaces, which is a terrible idea. And I just I think it's so tragic when people are taking something that actually could be a positive addition to the repertoire of tools we use to make you know teaching and learning as good as they can be and instead turning it into something terrible like that so i really yeah. um yeah i really hope a lot of institutions will not approach it that way but instead will recognize that actually we've just discovered a new tool that's great how can we add this to all of the already great tools that we had to do something even better that reaches more people now as, as a uh, as teachers, there is uh, there is definitely something that we can all unite behind. But uh, how how about as composers and the new Zoom reality? Um, I have uh, I have been thinking for a while um, that as composers we should consider the fact that the pandemic would have an effect on aleatoric music and spatialization, similar to the one that the First World War had on instrumentation choices. So I have already encountered the. Uh, one colleague, uh, Matthew Lane, composer, who also has been a guest in this podcast, he had to compose an aleatoric piece suitable for a Zoom rehearsal, incorporating all the delays and everything. Yeah. Have you noticed any COVID-inspired changes in approaches of scoring, either in your music or in the music of your colleagues? Now, I have myself uh, recorded, uh, done a socially distanced version of an aleatoric piece that has now become mm -hmm. a music video with a chamber orchestra recording everyone individually. Mm. So uh, the, 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 I have noticed the Zoom effect. Haven't you noticed the Zoom effect on your composition? <laughs> as a composer? Yeah, so um, last summer, I don't remember when I received the commission, but, but it was during the summer, around this time of year, um, a violinist and composer named Ruta Vitkaskaita um, received funding from the organization Contemporary Music for All to commission a COVID-related piece. Um, so she asked me to write a piece for her. Um, and I don't know about you, but it, 
for the first few months of the pandemic, I just felt not creative at all. I couldn't really yeah. do anything. Um, and I mean, I am lucky to have a working room here with a piano and space to work and stuff, but still I was just feeling so tired of always being in my room. We do have a garden, it was nice, but there was this wood pigeon that was just like calling and calling and calling. And they're just so, do you know the, you know what the wood pigeon is? It's the one that no, goes, I was doo, about to interrupt doo, you. Do, 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 do. Yes, I know. It. Yes, 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 of course you know it. I'm sure they have them in Bulgaria. Too. Yes, yes. Um, yes, it was just driving me crazy because it just would not go away. But, you know, I was asked to write this piece. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write a piece based on the actual birds that are coming to my garden. Um, and as you know, I've written a number of pieces based on birdsong, but very often I sort of become interested in a particular species and then I listen to lots of recordings of that species, or maybe I'm researching a particular environment and I transcribe a lot of birds from that environment, but I don't usually um, write just based on the specific birds that are around me. So um, I decided I would just, you know, explore what came to my garden. And it actually was a great way to get to know British birds, not all of which I knew yet. Um, so, you know, there was a chif, chaff, chif chaff, not a chaffinch, which you have in Canada, but a chif chaff, a blue tit, um, a wren, and then a European blackbird, which is one of my favorite birds. So I transcribed the song of that particular bird. I'm very pleased to note that exactly the same blackbird came back this year. You can tell them apart by their songs. They're all quite individual. Um, but yeah, so sort of composing under COVID caused me to pay closer attention to my exact surroundings than I usually do, which definitely sort of added a dimension to how I'm perceiving the world when I go out on a walk. Mm -hmm. um, but I also wrote the piece, uh, so it's for solo violin and recording device. So I, you know, I gave her freedom in how to do it, but I transcribed a number of bird songs. Um, I also sort of came up with a way to make rain sounds um, and then it can be performed either with a looper where you add the different layers of bird sounds or with just different layers of recordings, which can be added however you want. Um, and the piece has since also been performed by a violist uh, using different layers of recordings and by a group of clarinetists who are sort of playing it live rather than, um, actually, no, I guess they're doing recordings and then adding them together as well, but it's like multiple, instrumentalist rather than one instrumentalist mm -hmm. making multiple recordings. Um, so I would say, you know, that's a way I haven't composed before. And I left, I have a number of pieces which have, you know, quite a large aleatoric component, but usually, you know, there's some elements given like the character of the piece or the structure or something. And in this piece, I really didn't say anything about the character or the structure or even how much you're supposed to play one bird versus one of the other birds. So it's really completely open to the interpretation of the performer who's doing it. So I quite enjoyed um, giving the performers that much freedom. You know, when other people have asked for the score, I've suggested that they don't listen to the recordings before they decide how to interpret it because I'm curious to see the range of what people do. Uh, yes, uh, listening to recordings is something that uh even instrumental teachers uh, tell, tell their students not to do because uh, there is the danger of always copying the recording. Yeah. Saying, oh, this is, this is a, like a, and nowadays it becomes like a definitive version of what the piece yeah. should be. We shouldn't go this, this route. Uh, now we have uh, arrived at, the, at my last prepared question. <laughs> and it is a question that I ask each guest in one form or another. 
uh, this uh, podcast uh, has has a theme, and the theme is uh, professional ethics, mm-hmm. uh, ethics in music. So, as a composer, as a teacher, as a researcher, what would you consider a non-negotiable red line of professional ethics? And have you experienced a conflict between your personal morals and your professional ethics? We all know cases of lawyers who know their client is guilty, but they still have to defend them. Now, do you feel comfortable sharing what type of conflict it was without any details, obviously? Yeah. And uh, how did you choose to resolve it? Uh, That's a good question. I, I, you know, I can't really think of conflicts that I've been in. One thing that I, you know, I don't know how to deal with and probably there's nothing I should do, but, you know, sometimes I have been aware of people treating each other in unethical ways, but because it's not me who was treated that way and it's not my story to tell, I've not been in a position where I could do anything about it because, uh, you know, I couldn't do something without breaking somebody else's confidence. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, sort of me too things and things that I observed when I was a student, for example, like things that I knew were happening to another student, but they didn't happen to me. And so you just sit with these things and you're like, I know that, you know, I know who did that thing. I know that they're still there, but it's not, it's not something I could, or, you know, maybe it's a few steps removed. So you heard that somebody said that somebody did something and you know that it's true, but you can't say anything because you didn't witness it and you didn't experience it. Yes. And I feel, you know, I feel like every time you hear that, um, you know, some teacher at a famous arts institution, you know, has gotten in trouble for harassing students or something, you think, and I know of like three other cases like that where the person's still teaching. And again, you know, as I say, I'm very fortunate that nothing like that ever happened to me. And it's always been several steps removed. But at the same time, you know that while some people are not getting away with unethical things right now, others still are. Um, So that's a bit, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but I don't really know what. um, Yes, I have been in in this situation myself. Uh, In fact, one of my teachers lost their job because of uh, sexual harassment. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I knew the one of the people who were the victims of this. And uh, I had some feelings, but nothing definitely. Yeah. yeah. When it, when, let's say when it came to light, I was not surprised. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I, I feel like anybody who's been a music student will probably know some rumors and the rumors are probably true, but you can't do anything if you don't, you know, if yes. you don't have the experience or if you haven't seen it. So exactly, and if you don't have direct yeah. proof, yeah. Now we because false accusations do exist as well, right? So, but but sometimes you like no, it's not false, but nobody will right. believe you. Indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. I so wish that- I wish I was just as comfortable with myself in my twenties than I'm. Now. Right, right, right. Because now the older I get, I don't take any bush. You know, I, I'm really looking sure. forward to being 40. I think oh. my 40s are going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah wait till you're 48 and you just say whatever you want. I know, right? I, I, have, I have, say whatever you want. <laughs> I, have, I have heard this is the case. Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah. man. So can, I say, 
yeah, this is one other thing I wanted to say about the ethics thing, because I think the other thing, and I hope that we're moving out of this era, but I feel like in classical music for so long, there's been this idea that, oh, sure, that person is a horrible person, but they're the best, you know, flute player or whatever, the best flute player in the world. So even if they're a horrible person and they're doing all these things, you need to study with them because that's the only way you'll get better uh, or whatever. And it's not true. Like there's actually so many nice people in the world, yeah. so many nice people who are great musicians. Um, you know, if there's, uh, if there's one thing I could say to young musicians who are trying to figure out where to study, it would be like, find the people that you actually enjoy working with. Sure, that person might be a really good musician, but if they're also going to stab you in the back and they're not friendly, it's not worth it. Just find somebody who's a good musician and nice because there's plenty of people like that. I know, and, and uh, you know that the more you get removed from your school experience, the more uh, where you went to school actually doesn't really matter that much. Right, Because right. learning continues your entire life. We don't yeah. stop learning just because we're out right. of school, it's just the learning takes a different form. Yeah. So uh, now do, do people care that, that you know, uh, you went to Princeton or I, I went to Eastman, maybe in very specific contexts, but in general, this is not why people would come study with you. Right, right. And, for, and I mean, I am very glad I went to Princeton, but the reason is because I got to work with teachers who were very good, but also very kind. And I got to study the work, you know, I got to write my dissertation about animal songs and music and got to do the work that was interesting to me. Um, so that, you know, that's really what matters in the long run, yes, that you have absolutely. teachers who are caring and conscientious about helping you learn the skills you need to learn and that let you pursue the things that are, you know, that you're really passionate about. And most, uh, they're the, the looking for a teacher who may be a, a, a horrible person, but they're still a wonderful teacher. Now they're also wonderful teachers who are wonderful people and uh, nobody's irreplaceable. Right, exactly, you know? exactly. And yeah. irreplaceable people don't exist. and. Uh, uh, it's uh, sometimes students who, who knowingly go to study with a knowingly horrible person do so because they're looking for the powerful person mm. to help their career and not necessarily for the best teacher. That's true. Now yeah. I'm, not, I'm not judging, everyone makes their own decisions. Right. Just everyone should be free to make their own decisions yeah. and because they have to live with them after. So yeah, yeah. But uh, let, we can agree that most people are lovely, wonderful. Yes. Most yes. humans are actually great. Yep, I think so. And uh, I think <laughs> I think we are going to be okay. Yes. <laughs> and uh, from what I've seen, the young generation, they are amazing composers coming along. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Music is soon hands. Yes, yeah. for sure. <laughs> so on this happy note, I uh, wish to. Uh, we thank you very much for agreeing to uh, talk to Topical Reflections on Music, to taking so much time out of your day um, to reach out to uh, our audience that comes from across the world. Uh, thank you very much to Dr. Emily Doolittle for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you.